0: OK, okay uh, welcome all to the third Safra's uh, Pakistan lecture. I've just heard uh, we have a rival in town. Uh, Tony Robinson, otherwise known as Baldrick, is signing books in Blackwells. So I'm glad you have chosen a far superior uh, our presenter to give your attention to this evening. Right. I, as an economist of South Asia, uh, I, I do a subject not noted for its uh, aesthetic pleasures, But even I have intersected uh, over time with the much more colourful literary career and output of William Dalrymple. Uh, Two of William's very first books, In Xanadu, published in 1989, and From the Holy Mountain, published in the mid-1990s, these were two of the early, uh, or two of the books that really inspired me uh, to go backpacking. From the Holy Mountain was the reason I approached uh, Istanbul on my first visit with such reverence. And it was subsequent later trips with my rucksack that I first visited India, which later became my career. One, I think, particularly nostalgic, uh, I was just looking through my books, one particularly nostalgic picture in uh, Zanadu was one of William lounging in a courtyard, I think looks like the mid-1980s, with long floppy hair. Uh, nostalgic, because I remember when I read it for the first time, I also had long, floppy hair. <laughs> um, another book which was influential in a slightly different way uh, was White Moguls, which was published in 2002. So, William, I see your son looking a bit worried but, uh, <laughs> with the long, floppy hair. Uh, another book, as I say, which was influential in a slightly different way was White Moguls, which was published in 2002. This is in part a history, but in part um, the story of General James Achilles Kirkpatrick, uh, who was resident in India in the 18th century. Uh, James uh, turned to convert to Islam, he married an Indian lady and eventually ended up questioning uh, the British imperial role in India. One reviewer called this book The Story of the Indian Conquest of the European Imagination. So this spoke to me, or has spoken to me, over the years. I mean, I have no background, I have no family connections to India, but after I visited India for the first time, I've now spent 20 years of my life uh, reading about, researching, writing, and teaching about India. So, I mean, perhaps as an economist, my engagement uh, with South Asia has been easier than my colleague I see in the audience, who spent three years In Bihar and Chhattisgarh, living with Maoist guerrillas. So, this idea of a deep engagement or learning about a culture or a country other than one's own brings me to the Safraz lecture. In 2016, Pakistan is impossible to avoid in the media, on television, in the newspapers, in popular imagination. I looked today at Amazon. I typed in the keyword Pakistan. It threw up a slew of publications with depressing uh, books, with depressing covers. I went to The Guardian. I typed in Pakistan as a keyword. Again, it threw up a slew of depressing stories. These were about bombs. These were about uh, train collisions, conflict, Kashmir, the military. By comparison, I did the same on Amazon and Guardian for India. It also threw up negative stories, but it also threw up uh, color it threw up diversity, endurance, and heroism so a very different picture of India and Pakistan so a key aim of the safraz lecture has been to communicate Pakistan so yes, of course to a Pakistan audience, to the traditional watchers of Pakistan. I see quite a few uh, friends and colleagues from Pakistan in the audience, but also, and importantly, to a wider audience. This lecture series is not to ignore the many problems Pakistan has, but to aim to go beyond them, not to define Pakistan by its problems. So yes, Pakistan has bombs and extremism, But also, like India, Pakistan has colour, it has endurance, it has diversity, it has heroism. So William Dalrymple, I think, is ideal for delivering this third um, Safra's lecture on Pakistan. William has an enviable range in writing about both the big and the small. So in Return of the King, for example, uh, we can read about the appalling horrors of the First Afghan War. In the Age of Kali... We can read about Benazir Bhutto's favourite ice cream. So today uh, the Koh-i-Noor is the small and the crown potentially the much larger part of the lecture. So without further ado, I'd like to pass over and to welcome William Dalrymple.
1: Could we have the lights down, please? This story opens in Lahore, uh, but uh, a little bit before the creation of Pakistan. Um, on the 29th of March, 1849, um, the young 10-year-old Maharaja, Dulip Singh, uh, is called into the... Mahal at the heart of the fort of Lahore uh, and he finds himself surrounded by elderly gentlemen in red coats and plumed hats uh, and all speaking a language that he doesn't understand his father has died uh, nine years previously uh, and his mother who is alive but is locked up just outside Lahore at Sheikapura in a palace and nowhere to be seen. Uh, And he is called on to sign a piece of paper, which after putting it off for a great deal of time, he eventually is forced to do. And on this fateful day, 29th of March, 1849, Dulip Singh signs what is later called the Treaty of Lahore. And he hands over to a private limited company the East India Company, uh, not the British government, uh, but something much more sinister, an armed multinational company uh, which now straddles three continents uh, and has an army by this size, twice the size of the British army. Uh, And uh, he hands over to (coughs) this company the richest land in India, the Punjab, which until this point has been the independent Sikh kingdom. But one of the uh, one of the articles of this treaty, hands over something even more valuable, uh, possibly the most valuable object in India, which is the Kohinoor diamond, and that is handed over not to the company, uh, but specifically to Queen Victoria. Uh, and a week later, Lord Dalhousie, the Governor General, writes to uh, a young assistant magistrate in Delhi uh, called Theo Metcalf to try and begin to find out a little bit of the history of this diamond. So Theo Metcalf rides out and begins to interview the jewellers and the princes uh, of Delhi to try and piece together the, the story of this diamond. And uh, Theo is, 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 no, is really no scholar. He's uh, uh, he has huge gambling debts. He's, he plays the starring role in the Delhi Amateur Dramatics Club. Um, but uh, he, he cobbles together a uh, history uh, of this diamond that begins um, with this mythical past. He says First, according to the traditions of the eldest jewellers in the city of Delhi, handed down from family to family, this diamond was extracted from the mine Kohinoor, four days from the coast. On the banks of the Godavari in the lifetime of Krishna, who's supposed to have lived 5,000 years ago. And Theo cobbles together this story of the diamond, uh, which his report still sits in the archives, the National Archives of India. And he, it creates this mythical and rather wonderful story of the diamond uh, which is permanently at the center uh, of a whirlwind of violence. It's passed. Uh, passes into the eye of an idol in an unnamed temple in, in uh, Tamil Nadu. Uh, from there it's first seized by Alauddin Khalji. Uh, from them the whole succession of dynasties rob it one from another, first the Tukluks, then the Lodis, uh, then the Mughals get their hands on it. Um, and anyway this story he, he creates, becomes the history of the Kohinoor that you can still read today on Wikipedia, for example, if you just type in Koh-i-Noor, up will come this, this story. Uh, and it's only if you begin to examine each bit of the story that almost every bit of it falls apart. Um, having spent quite a while now, I, I literally sent the book uh, of this. Uh, um, the last edits of this book uh, from the Perch pub this afternoon uh, off to my publisher in Delhi and it is now currently in the press which it wasn't this morning uh, and the, the, this is the end of the project so it's very nice to be talking about it at this particular moment um, but if you examine it virtually none of these stories stand up to any uh, examination at all and after many months of, of research and looking in uh, all sorts of places I haven't found a single reference to this diamond that is 100% certain, that is uh, clearly about this one diamond, uh, before 1750. Uh, the, the first reference I can find is in the account of the Persian historian uh, Muhammad Marvi, who writes of Nadir Shah's attack on Delhi in 1739. Uh, and he gives a very exact and clear. First description of the stone. Now, there is, as far as I can see, nothing that predates this in any way. Uh, Although there are many, many references to large diamonds, of which there was uh, a large number floating around India. Uh, And when you begin to try and, I mean, it's such an interesting because a diamond obviously is the hardest substance known to man, and yet this particular diamond is shrouded in this sort of. Uh, insubstantial fog of mythology, uh, which has sort of um, occluded uh, uh, its past for so long, um, and you begin to search for the reason why that this, this particular diamond, which incidentally is not the largest diamond in the world, it is in fact today the, about the ninetieth biggest diamond in the world. Um, rather disappointingly, even in the in the showcase, you can see it in in the. Uh, uh, Tower of London, I think it's the third biggest diamond in the case rather than the largest, uh, and uh, and yet this diamond continues to attract mythology and legends around it, and to be a centre of divisiveness, as recently as last April uh, there was an enormous squabble in the Indian press when the um, solicitor general uh, announced that the diamond had been given uh, speaking on behalf of the Indian government had uh, been given to the British, freely by Ranjit Singh, uh, and was not loot or plundered. Now, about the only episode in this diamond's history that is not uh, under question is this moment uh, when it was given by Dulip Singh, Ranjit Singh's son, uh, under duress. And so the one, <laughs> the one thing that's not in dispute uh, was got uh, completely wrong by the uh, Indian government. And um, uh, so there are currently claims on this stone, not just from India, but Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, and, we should add, the Taliban, who have also put in a formal, a formal claim to it. Um, but to understand why, in a sense, it has this enormous reputation, uh, you have to look at what happens immediately after this. This is 1849. The diamond goes back to England. And in 1851, it appears at the Great Exhibition. Which is the big media event uh, of Victorian times. Every newspaper, the Times, Illustrated London News, is there. And there, at the center of the Crystal Palace, is the Koh noor in its specially commissioned chub case, uh, which uh, is designed, if anyone tries to break in, uh, rather like a a sort of lotus of. of, uh, 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 steel will cover it and will sink into the uh, into the bottom of the safe. And this is designed by Mr Chubb himself, who uh, spends many months as the diamond is coming towards England working on this uh, fail-safe Victorian gadget. Uh, and there, in the eye of the Victorian media, a symbol, deliberately at the time, created as a symbol of imperial loot, as a symbol of the ability of the Victorians to bring to London... Captive objects from around the globe, rather as the Romans did in their triumphs two thousand years earlier, Um, and it's this point that it's launched into the imagination of the world, Uh, and it's forgotten that the Moguls had in fact two diamonds which were as large, and one of which was almost certainly larger, Um, and that uh, that. For the moguls themselves, who, as I say, there is not a single reference in any mogul source to the Kohinoor that's 100% certain. Uh, uh, there's certainly no mention of it under that name, although there are several large diamonds uh, mentioned which are of roughly similar dates, uh, similar weights, um, and, and yet once it's appeared at the Great Exhibition, the Kohinoor's trajectory into the limelight. Uh, is assured. And shortly after that, for example, you get uh, Wilkie Collins writing The Moonstone. Uh, it, it enters Victorian literature. Even the Prime Minister, Disraeli, writes a novel, Lothair, now I've forgotten, but uh, uh, which also features uh, a bag of cursed diamonds uh, from a Maharaja in India. Uh, and it is in, it is in the 1850s, which is at the same moment that the, uh, the brilliant cut uh, becomes popular and diamonds enter middle-class families, as uh, something that you give uh, on engagements with the price of diamonds rising across the globe. It's at this point that the koh comes to be seen as something unique because uh, for the moguls, they didn't particularly like diamonds. They preferred rubies and spinels. And, and in, uh, in, in mogul accounts, you have very clearly Uh, the the prominence of red stones of light over diamonds uh, as the supreme gemstone. I mean, they liked diamonds. Don't get me wrong, they they, they, they liked diamonds very much, but they were not not their favourite stone. Um, So you have to go back to the beginning and and examine this story afresh um, and sweep away uh, the layers of mythology which were first created by this character, this assist, young assistant magistrate, aged 22 in Delhi uh, in 1849, uh, who created the myth of the Kohi Noor that has remained more or less unchallenged to today. So let's go back right to the beginning um, and have a little look at where diamonds fit in uh, in Indian cosmology. All the diamonds in the world, with the exception of a few small black diamonds that were found in the mountains of Borneo until the New World mines, all the diamonds in the world came from India. Um, they were not mined, they were uh, alluvial, and they, uh, they were sieved from the remains of a- dried up ancient riverbeds, uh, rather like the, the, we've all seen in, uh, in Westerns, uh, people with their uh, sieves panning for gold in in parts of the American West. This is what you actually do uh, with uh, ancient Indian diamonds. You look for them in the soft sands and gravels of dead riverbeds. And there they appear as tiny octahedral crystals, naturally formed. Uh, And almost all diamonds are these tiny crystals. Very occasionally they can grow a little bit larger. And very, very exceptionally you get something about the size of a hen's egg. Uh, and one of these uh, uh, large uh, sort of mega diamonds uh, was the i Norm. Uh, we'd have no idea when it was discovered. There's absolutely <coughs> no clear information about it. Um, and it's quite possible that it was discovered uh, as late as the 17th or 16th centuries. Um, equally could be the case, though, that it, it is uh, a diamond of great antiquity, uh, diamonds being as hard as they are, they, they, they are impossible to date. You can't um, sort of do something with, with uh, 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 rings like a tree or a carbonate. <coughs> they, are, they are impossible to date. Uh, but they appear very early on as one of the most important products of India. The pyramids were being cut and polished uh, with Indian diamonds as early as uh, 3000 BC. They, uh, they travel in all directions. They're valued in China, uh, they're valued in Hellenic Afghanistan, they become popular accessories for fashionable women in Augustan Rome. Uh, but it is in India that they begin to assume a, a sort of theological significance. And then the Puranas, uh, written of, certainly which fought, uh, take their final form in around the 9th and 10th centuries, um, you get these mentions of uh, diamonds forming from the body of the demon Bala, uh, who agrees to be sacrificed by the gods, who yields up his ghost, according to the uh, Bhagavad Purana, uh, for the good of the universe. And behold, the severed limbs of his sacrificed body were converted into the seeds of gems. Then the Yakshas and the Siddhas and the Nagas rushed eagerly to collect the seeds of these gems, and there were mighty flutterings of celestial pinions and rustlings of celestial garments in the heavens. The gods came riding in their aerial cars and carried away the seeds of gems for their own use, some of which dropped down to earth through the violent concussions of the air. And wherever they dropped, whether in oceans, rivers, mountains or wildernesses, there originated mines of those gems through the celestial potency of these seeds. So they appear right early on uh, as as semi-divine objects. The learned, says the Garuda Purnima, hold diamonds to be the most effulgent of all precious stones. Um, and rather oddly, the, the, the same uh, Purana uh, then says that it's, uh, uh, it, it drives thieves away, which is not most people's experience with diamonds. Uh, <laughs> prosperity, long life, increase of wives and progeny and domestic animals, and the bringing home of a teeming harvest, all attend on a diamond, keen and well-marked in its points, clear in luster, and divested of baneful traits. Serpents, tigers, and thieves fly from the presence of a person wearing such a diamond. <laughs> Fatal and dreadful poisons, secretly administered, prove inoperative in his system, and all his possessions enjoy a kind of immunity from acts of incendiarism or erosion by water. The complexion of such a person is even an acne cure. The complexion of such a person improves in its helpful glow, and all his undertakings <laughs> become prosperous and thriving. Now. Um, there's a bit of revisionism that goes on in the next century, because by the time that uh, 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 later Puranas uh, are written, uh, the Bhagavad Purana speaks very clearly about a cursed gem, the Symantica gem. And this is, is variously described as, as, as either a ruby uh, or, or, more usually, a diamond, which is worn by the sun god, Surya. Uh, and it becomes part of the tales of Krishna. Uh, and it is a great boon to a person who is pure, but deadly to anyone uh, who is sinful. Uh, and uh, the Bhagavad Purana tells the story of the Simantika gem, which is given to a devotee of Surya uh, who wears it. And then, again, as with uh, the later and real history of the or almost everyone who comes into contact with it is either killed, maimed, tortured, or burnt alive. Uh, and uh, so that by the 19th century, people begin to associate the two. Um, and it is the presumed origin of this trope of the cursed gem, which enters English literature in the 19th century. Now, throughout the, uh, the both the Sultanate and the early, early Mughal period, there are many references to very large gems. Uh, uh, this description comes back about the size of a hen's egg. Um, there were some famous diamonds in the great city of Vijayanagara. Described by uh, Abdul Razak Samarkandi, um And he talks about the king of Vijayanagara uh, having his throne covered with, with huge diamonds, wearing further uh, further necklaces. Uh, but the first time that we get the sighting of something which could be the Kohenum comes after the invasion of Babur uh, in 1526, uh, when, according to his own diary, the Baburnama. Nama, um, Vikramjeet the Raja of Gwalior, um, his family is in Agra uh, at the time of the conquest when uh, uh, Ibrahim Lodi is killed at the Battle of Palipat and the family give over to Humayun. They make a voluntary offering, says Babur, of a mass of jewels, amongst which was the famous diamond of Alauddin Kilji. Its reputation is that uh, it, its value is two and a half days' food for the whole world. It may weigh as much as eight miscaws. Now, this diamond has always been assumed to be the, uh, the Koinor, or has often been assumed to be the It could be. Uh, but we know that there are at least four other mogul diamonds of, this, of virtually the same size. And there's no reason to assume it's, it's, it's one or the other from the description. It's not clear enough from the description which this is. And anyway, this diamond then goes off to Persia. Humayun, the slightly dreamy, feckless son of Babur, uh, takes it off. <coughs> Uh, to uh, uh, to Persia and gives it to Shah Tamasp uh, when he's in exile. Uh, it's then sent back by uh, Shah Tamasp to the Deccan, where it disappears again uh, and isn't heard of um, for uh, at least another hundred years. We know from Abu Faisal's account of the Mughal uh, treasury during his day that there was no diamond that was at least even half the size of Babu's diamond there uh, at this point. But the Mughals obsess about gems in a way that no previous dynasty has. And it's particularly in the person of Shah Jahan and his father Jahangir uh, that that diamonds, rubies, and spinels uh, become a major part of court ceremonial. Um, And this process reaches its climax uh, when Shah Jahan builds the most expensive piece of furniture ever made, which is the peacock throne. This is an image of it um, from the V&A. And, uh, it costs four times the price of the Taj Mahal to build. And it, and it basically contains every diamond that the moguls, every ruby, every pearl that the moguls have accumulated in their treasure uh, to that point. Uh, and it's built with the express purpose of using these gems uh, as a means of imperial propaganda. Uh, and it's modeled on the throne, the Quranic throne of Solomon. Um, the, uh, the, 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 there are images of gardens and cypresses, the peacocks themselves uh, appear in descriptions of Solomon's tomb. Um, and uh, the Mughals themselves cover themselves in these gems. They not only uh, have it in the in furniture and the throne, uh, but they wear it all over themselves. The first English ambassador uh, to the Mughal court, Thomas Rowe, describes the, uh, the Emperor Jahangir clothed or rather laden with diamonds, rubies, pearls, and other precious vanities, so great, so glorious. His head, neck, breast, arms, above the elbows and wrists, his fingers, each with at least one or two rings, are fettered with chains of gold and diamonds. Uh, Rubies as great as walnuts, some greater and pearls, such as mine eyes were amazed at. In jewels, which is one of his felicities, he is the treasury of the world. So you get this impression uh, of these first Europeans arriving in India and just being dazzled at the the wealth of this corporation, something which, of course, sort of burnt itself permanently into the English language, so that when today uh, a newspaper describes Donald Trump as a property mogul, uh, this is a distant reflection uh, of the effect that the moguls had uh, on these first uh, British uh, diplomats and traders. Uh, They're not praising Donald Trump's aesthetics, lovely though that gold lift uh, may be to the eyes of some, such as Nigel Farage, uh, they are praising instead just that Moguls become a synonym for power and wealth. Um, and uh, yet we do not know uh, at what point the Koh entered the Mogul treasury. It's very frustrating. We, we can make uh, many speculations. There have been Mir Jumla gave a whole load of enormous diamonds to Shah Jahan. Uh, in the 1640s, they uh, are probably not, however, going to be the Koh-i-Noor because they're huge, they're uncut uh, and the uh, and wrong size. Uh, and it's only in 1751 that we get a description of the Kohinoor as sitting on uh, the head of one of the peacocks. You see the peacocks at the top of the image? Uh, that was where it seems in the first description that we have of the Kohinoor. Uh, that was where it was. According to uh, this Persian observer who gives an eyewitness account, he says, and, uh, he describes the peacock throne uh, as shaped like a European hat with a circular brim and has on its sides and canopy gilded and studded with jewels. On top of this was placed a peacock made of emeralds and rubies. Its, its head was attached to a diamond the size of a hen's egg known as the koh i the mountain of light, whose price no one but God himself could know. The wings were studded with many jewels, many pearls, each the size of a pigeon's eggs, strung on a wire and attached to pillars supporting the throne. Everything appertaining to this throne was adored with gold and jewels, the least of which weighs half a miscal. The ground was covered with pearl-edged braid. This throne and its railings were all in pieces, dismantled for transport and would be reassembled in order. So, we don't know when the diamond entered the Mughal treasury, but we do know when it left. And it left during the reign of this man, Muhammad Shah Rangila. Muhammad Shah Rangila um, had a great fondness for wearing uh, ladies' fashions, ladies' teshwas, uh, and pearl-edged shoes. Uh, he was a great Eastlite, a very important cultural figure. He revived the Mughal atelier, this image by Bhupal Singh is typical of the art of his period. The, the, the Mughal artists disperse to the, the Punjab hills and to Rajasthan during the reign of Aurangzeb and his successors, and when they come back to Delhi, they bring with them, in a sense, the colours of Rajasthan with them. You'd never find this palette in an earlier Mughal picture, it's fantastic or even though it's described. This is exactly the sort of image that would have made Aurangzeb turn in his grave. Uh, you have one of his successors wearing ladies' clothing, uh, cavorting with courtesans to celebrate a Hindu festival there's almost uh, if, uh, uh, I suppose the, the equivalent moment in English history is the restoration after uh, all the gloom and doom of the Commonwealth uh, and Oliver Cromwell uh, with the return of Charles II suddenly courtesans colour, painting, excess this is the, uh, the world of Mohammed Shah Ranghila. Uh, the courtesans of his age according to the Murakha Delhi were famous Nur Begum would turn up stark naked at parties but so cleverly painted like Demi Moore and Vanity Fair that no one would notice uh, and uh, um, it was his ill fortune however however uh, lively a character however great a cultural patron it was he for example who introduced both the sita and the tabla into court music which had previously just been part of uh, Punjabi folk music. Um, here he is uh, in, a, in a rare image of a mogul making love. Uh, apparently, um, he was rumoured to be impotent. So this, again, is sort of a, a sophisticated piece of imperial propaganda if you believe the art <laughs> story, uh, It's not just a simple piece of pornography. Um, but it was his ill luck that he should had. reign at the same time as this man uh, who wasn't very interested in music or poetry uh, or the arts at all. This is Nadesha, the son of a shepherd from Khorasan, Turkmen, not an not ethnic Persian, um, who rose through the sheer military <coughs> brilliance uh, of, his, uh, 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 of his techniques, and eventually overthrew the Safavids, took over Persia, uh, and then turned his attentions to Afghanistan. And then when he'd taken Kabul, which was still, as late as the 1730s, part of the Mughal Empire, um, and no one uh, resists him. Uh, The local Mughal governor doesn't even fight him um, for for Kabul, which is the northernmost capital of the Mughals. Uh, He then descends the Khyber Pass, takes Lahore, uh, and heads for Denny. And on the field of Karnal... Uh, one of the most extraordinary battles in Indian history is fought. Uh, On one side, you have three Mughal armies, which, including all the non-competents and sises and dancing girls and everyone else, amounts to 1.5 million men in the Mughal camp. Uh, There's one army from the Deccan, one army from al and one from Delhi. And they are uh, defeated and run rings around by Nadia Shah's army of only 150,000 crack cavalry armed with the latest gizmo from, uh, of Persian military technique, which is uh, the swivel gun. And the swivel gun uh, is the armour-piercing musket which you rest on a tripod <coughs> on the horse's uh, neck. And uh, uh, Nadir Shah lures the Mughal army, big heavy cavalry, into an old-fashioned, straightforward cavalry charge. At the last minute, the light cavalry parts, uh, and these lines of swivel guns are lined up and in a few minutes, the flower of mogul chivalry lies dead on the ground. And then Nadir Shah shows his brilliance by inviting Muhammad Shah Rangila to come to dinner. And Muhammad Shah Rangila tends to enjoy dinner parties, so blithely accepts the invitation. And of course, he's not allowed to leave. Uh, and so while he's got a million soldiers sitting in his camp behind him, uh, he arrives with only 20 bodyguards who are disarmed uh, immediately by Nadia Shah. And the next day, uh, playing a very... Uh, tough psychological game uh, he invites the um, all the leading nobles who aren't with, the, say the emperor invites you to come so they come over, then they come and take the artillery and the following day they return to the to the camp and tell all the soldiers that they've got orders to return to Delhi and through a mixture of, of, of a defeat of one portion of the army uh, and then just uh, infl- uh, just playing this game with Muhammad Shah Rangila uh, Nadir Shah marches into Delhi, side by side with his captive Mughal emperor. Uh, and uh, the two of them lodge together in the Red Fort. Nader Shah takes over Mohammed Shah's apartments. Mohammed Shah is sent off to live in the Harim. Uh, and uh, there follows a terrible massacre uh, after the soldiers, uh, the Delhi people start uh, try to massacre the Persian soldiers in the streets. Nader Shah mounts the Russian of Dalai Mosque uh, and commands a great massacre of the people of Delhi. And then, uh, as the price of ending that massacre uh, demands the entire Mughal treasury. And in the treasury in the Red Fort are three successive tiers containing everything that this dynasty has gathered from around India over the previous 300 years, 200 years. And um, this is shipped off to Persia on 700 elephants, 4,000 camels, and 12,000 horses carrying wagons, all laden with gold and silver. And they spend months melting it all down into ingots so that they can carry it off. Uh, and this is the single largest act of looting in Indian history. Uh, without having to really fight at all for this, uh, having uh, marched into the Red Fort alongside the Emperor, Muhammad Shah Rangila, uh, they, ta- they take off to uh, Khorasan with the entire content. Of the treasury, uh, and um, with it uh, is the is the peacock throne with the coignol on its roof, and this is the first clear one hundred percent clear reference that we have to the uh, <coughs> to the Koinor. Shah takes it all to Herat, and in Herat he builds uh, a tent. Uh, and just like Shah Jahan had tried to put all his jewels into the peacock throne, the peacock throne is inside a tent that contains all the other jewels that Nadia Shah has gathered. So you have a sort of enormous sort of jewel sandwich erected in, uh, in Herat. Um, the tent was ordered to be pitched in the Duan Khan of the Herat fort. And there was placed place that, uh, the peacock throne brought from Delhi, and another jeweled throne called the Takht Nadiri, along with the thrones of several other conquered monarchs. Publication was made by the beat of a drum throughout the city and camp that all Persians had liberty to come to this magnificent exhibition, such as never been seen in any age or country. The beauty and magnificence of Nadia's throne tent were beyond description. The outside of the tent, this is all the description of uh, Abdul uh, Hamid Kashmiri, who was a a Kashmiri soldier who enlisted in Delhi into Nadia Shah's uh, 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 entourage. The outside of the tent was covered in fine scarlet broadcloth, the lining was of violet, coloured with satin, on which were representations of all the birds and beasts in creation, with trees and flowers, the whole made of diamonds, rubies and pearls. So Nadia Shah takes this all, places it in Herat, uh, but then proceeds to descend very quickly uh, into unbelievable violence and madness. He uh, a year later, uh, he blinds his own son, uh, who he believes has tried to assassinate him, uh, and uh, then begins assembling towers of skulls wherever he goes. And eventually, he's assassinated seven years later by his own bodyguard. And by the stage, there's been uh, uh, two rival camps in Nadir Shah's army. There's the, his own Persian troops uh, and his uh, his elite Afghan. Uh, guards led by Ahmed Shah Durrani, and on the night of um, Nader Shah's assassination, uh, when his uh, when the, the Persian his own Persian relations break into his his tent and assassinate him, uh, on that night uh, the Afghans under Ahmed, Ahmed Khan Durrani as he is then um, defend his harem, and he is given the Koinor in the morning, by uh, Nadir Shah's chief wife, uh, as a, a thank you present for saving their lives. That's at least the Afghan version of events, which you can believe or not. But certainly, the following morning, uh, Ahmad Shah and his Afghans, five thousand strong, ride off to Kandahar with the Kohinoor and what has become the uh, the, 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 the twin of the Kohinoor, which is the um, the Timur Ruby, uh, and the Timur Ruby. Uh, is worn by Ahmed Shah Durrani on one hand, on one arm, as a Bazuband and on the other arm is the nor So it's been taken off the throne at this point uh, and placed in an armband. Uh, and um, the two, these two jewels remain pairs of each other uh, throughout the next hundred years. Uh, and uh, in, in most accounts, at this period, uh, more attention is paid to the uh, the Timur ruby. Than to the Kohi um, it's very clear throughout all the Mughal accounts. For example, in Abu Faisal, that the uh, the diamonds are kept in lower tier of the treasury than the rubies and the spinels. Um, and then this. Uh, the, 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 it passes down the uh, Durani dynasty. Next, uh, Timur Shah, who is the son of uh, Ahmad Durrani, inherits it. Uh, he is uh, he is. So small he needs a mounting, a jewelled mounting stool to mount his uh, horse. Um, he modelled his government on that of the great rulers, records the Saraj and He wore a diamond-studded brooch in his turban and a jewelled sash on his shoulder. His overcoat was ornamented with precious stones, and he wore the Kohi Noor in his right forearm and the Fakraj ruby on his left. So they, it's called sometimes the Timur ruby, sometimes the Fakraj ruby, sometimes the al Hur, the Eye of the Huri. Um his overcoat was ornamented with precious stones, and he wore the kohinoor on his forearm. His Highness Timur also mounted another encrusted brooch on his horse's forehead. Because he was a man of short stature, a bejewelled step stool was made for him. Whenever he rode it, he would use it to mount the horse. <coughs> so it passes from Timur Shah to his son Shah Zaman, uh, but by this stage, the Durrani Empire is collapsing, uh, and Shah Zaman is eventually captured by. Um, a tribe at the top of the khyber Pass, the Shimwaris, who lock him in uh, a prison cell and blind him. Uh, but before he, uh, according to the Surah tariq which is this Afghan chronicle, before he uh, is blinded, he digs the Koh-i-Noor into the wall of his prison cell with a dagger uh, and hides it uh, in the wall. So this, this great diamond, which has been on the peacock throne, is now um, hidden <coughs> in an Afghan prison cell wall. Uh, and when his brother comes to the throne, I know he looks uh, like an extra from The Hobbit, uh, but this is Shah Shudja Muk, the brother of Shah uh, Zaman, who, who returns to uh, power after Shah Zaman's blinding. Um, he sends out... The first thing he does after getting the throne is to send out search parties to look for the these two great gems uh, which have been hidden in the prison cell. Uh, and uh, he finds the... Timur Ruby uh, is, uh, is with uh, a young student who uh, found it. Uh, uh, someone else had hidden it in a river uh, and it had been retrieved when he was washing. Uh, and meanwhile, the Kohinoor is being used as a paperweight by a mullah in the fort who hadn't recognised what it was. And for 10 years, it's just been sitting as a paperweight on a desk uh, to keep pious sermons. Uh, and from this point, the Kohinoor has this wonderful effect that who, almost whoever touches it, um, comes to an unbelievably uh, sh- sticky and short end. Shah Shuja himself uh, uh, loses it to Ranjit Singh, uh, seen here, um, who starves uh, Shah Shuja uh, and tortures his son until he passes it over. Um, and uh, Ranjit Singh... Um, makes a huge point of wearing it in public on all occasions and it's under Ranjit Singh that the diamond first becomes uh, this is at the point when the price of diamonds are rising uh, in the early 19th century uh, and uh, with the rise of uh, the the fashion for wedding rings in Western Europe and this fashion for diamonds and rubies is refracted back from Europe into India and Ranjit Singh is the first person who, who gives the, uh, the diamond a precedence uh, over the ruby. And uh, Ranjit Singh is a very wily character. The British tried to encourage him to invade Afghanistan. And he won't have any of it. Um, but he's an ally of the British. So he has to find a way of... Uh, of putting the British off, and they, they end up having to march around the Sikh kingdom. It's just one day's march from, or two days' march from uh, Ludhiana through Ropindi up to the Khyber Pass if we take a direct route. But Shashuja, um, sorry, Red bans the British uh, from crossing his territory, so they have to take a six month detour of 5,000 miles up through the back end of Afghanistan to Kandahar uh, to avoid him. Now, the real um, Succession of, of, of bloodshed takes place uh, after uh, Ranjit Singh's death in 1839, and his next three successors, each of whom wear the kohinoor uh, in their arm in their armband, each of them uh, dies a bloody death. The first uh, is Karak Singh, the son uh, of Ranjit Singh, uh, who uh, who's a, a, a a semi-idiot uh, and his, his courtiers can't have him running the Sikh Khalsa uh, he, he's, uh, so they slow poison him with lead uh, and he develops this terrible uh, itch uh, on his skin and dies within six months. His younger brother succeeds to the throne the next day uh, and at the end of his coronation ceremony an arch is collapsed upon him uh, and, uh, and he dies. His then His younger brother is found dead in his bed uh, with his head pummeled in. So uh, th- th- this is the point at which almost anything associated with the koh i uh, begins to end like an episode of Game of Thrones. Um, the, uh, even people who are thought to have the koh i um, but do not suffer a similar fate. There is a, uh, there is a, a Persian prince who is a grandson of Nadir Shah uh, who uh, has, has inherited the Daria the sister of the Cuirinnor, uh, but not the Cuirinnor. And when he is captured by one of his enemies, uh, he is tortured into revealing the hiding place of the Darienor, which he does, and then is tried to uh, be tortured into uh, revealing the hiding place of the Kohenor, which he doesn't. have. Uh, and uh, instead, uh, they, uh, when he fails to reveal the hiding place, they build a paste crown uh, on his forehead and then pour molten lead. Uh, over his head, which is very close to the end of the first series of Game of Thrones. With, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, Dunip Singh inherits the diamond uh, only for the British to uh, seize it from him. Uh, and uh, even the, uh, on its journey to England, uh, the kind of the, the, this, this scything effect of the Cohen of uh, law is evident. Uh, the ship which is carrying it, the Medea, leaves Bombay uh, in 1849, and almost immediately cholera breaks out on the ship. Uh, they try to land on Mauritius, but the Mauritius people won't allow them to land and, and sh- shell the ship. And it, I, I don't know how many of you know the, um, the, the, the Herzog film Nosferatu, The Vampire, uh, when that ghost ship is sailing with sort of uh, Dracula to uh, it 's like that uh, one by one, the sailors all die off in cholera, and only three people are alive when it finally arrives off Portsmouth. Uh, the day it lands, the prime minister uh, is, is, is attacked uh, and, and in the street uh, and um, it then goes to the great exhibition, and this is the moment that the Cohen noor appears. On every headline and becomes part of uh, British national consciousness, and via that, by the Times and the Illustrated London News, becomes part of uh, uh, the uh, becomes the most famous gem in the world. The other diamonds that were as large as it uh, are, are dispersed at the death of Nadir Shah. The Daryanur remains in Persia, uh, where it's probably uh, two or three carats larger. Uh, than the koh but it's never been measured, finally. The great <coughs> mogul diamond, which was seen by the, uh, the, the great traveller uh, Tavernier, uh, and for a long time by Victorians, was always assumed to be the koh in fact, it seems modern gemologists seem certain, is the Orlov diamond, which is now in the scepter in the Kremlin. Uh, the Orlov diamond uh, was also... Uh, dispersed from Nadir Shah's treasury on his death. Uh, It got picked up by an Armenian merchant who travelled to the new centre of the world diamond market in Amsterdam, uh, where it was bought by Catherine the Great's lover, Count Orlov. Uh, However, in uh, Orlov's absence in Europe, Catherine the Great takes up with Potemkin. Uh, So when he arrives back and presents the the Orlov diamond to... uh, Catherine, uh, uh, on her name day, uh, uh, Catherine says, thank you very much, takes the diamond but remains with Potemkin, doesn't take Orlov back. Orlov realizes that he's hawked he's his entire estate and all his family's valuables in order to buy this diamond and dies raving in a Russian lunatic asylum. Uh, so it's not looking good for anyone associated with it. Um, immediately after uh, the Immediately that it's put on show th- in the in the uh, pavilion in the Crystal Palace, uh, huge queues form to see the coynol, um, which is regarded as the supreme article of uh, imperial loot. And Mr Chubb's case is at the centre of this, but everyone complains that it's not bright enough because it's not diamond, it's not brilliant cut. Europeans now are used to seeing all their diamonds symmetrically cut. Uh, in in this new form of cutting, the diamond cut. Uh, The moguls uh, prefer, rather like medieval Europeans, to have cabochons, to have uncut stones as large as possible. They value stones for their weight uh, with all their imperfections and uh, asymmetries. But the the Europeans who queue up to see the stone are surprised that it's not shiny enough. Uh, So, um, while Dulip Singh is being painted... Uh, as an adult in Queen Victoria's court, um, and Queen Victoria briefly wears the, the stone herself, they decide to recut it. Uh, and they bring in the Duke of Wellington to begin the cut. Uh, and the Duke of Wellington is hauled out of retirement uh, and uh, makes the beginning of the, uh, of the cut
0: uh,
1: and dies a week later. Uh, <laughs> Inevitably. Uh, uh, but the cut is, is botched the Koh-i-Noor has an extremely complex uh, 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 crystallography and as the uh, despite bringing in the leading diamond cutters from Amsterdam and studying it at some length before uh, beginning the cut uh, the, in, order, in order to try and get it symmetrical and brilliant they end up losing three quarters of the weight uh, of this stone uh, leaving it today uh, merely the 90th Largest diamond uh, in the world. Um, So today the stone remains a symbol of imperial loot. It's almost a touchstone to attitudes to colonial looting. Should we try and right the wrongs of the past? Uh, Should it be given back uh, to uh, the Taliban to Iran, to Afghanistan, to Pakistan or India, should it be split up uh, like a sort of modern uh, Solomonic uh, 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 quartering of the stone to the different takers? Um, One other possible uh, option has been raised, that they build a museum for it on Wagah border, uh, and rather than seeing the goose-stepping Pakistani and uh, Indian soldiers as a president, you can go and have a look at the Covenor with the rival sides looking at it from different sides of the display case, uh, which I rather like the uh, uh, the notion of that. Um, interestingly, it's never uh, the, the the notion of whether it is cursed or not has haunted the statement. Dalhousie hoped when he when he gave it not to the company but gave it directly to the Queen uh, that he would. Um, be immediately made Foreign Secretary on his return from being Viceroy. But because already the rumours had preceded it that this was a cursed diamond, uh, although Queen Victoria wore it, um, no king has ever worn it. Uh, And uh, Dalhousie, to his old age, wrote angrily that this was not a cursed, uh, that uh, uh, many of its uh, wearers had been... um, uh, had been some of the richest, most powerful rulers like Shah Durrani. Um, yet, as its story shows, many of the owners of the koh Shah Shuja among them, did indeed suffer in the most appalling ways. Blinded, slow-poisoned, tortured to death, burnt in oil, uh, threatened with drowning and assassination uh, by their own family and bodyguards. Uh, even inanimate objects like the Medea seemed to be struck down when in contact with it. Um, although it was never the largest diamond, uh, both the Darya Noor and the Great Mogul diamond were slightly larger. Today, post-cutting, there are st- at least a hundred diamonds larger than it. It nevertheless retains this strange fame and celebrity, uh, unmatched by any of its larger or more perfect rivals, uh, and it, re- it remains the focus of post-colonial demands for compensation for colonial looting um, and a, a set in motion repeated attempts to have it returned to its different homes. 170 years after it first came into British hands, the koh i raises still important historical issues, but contemporary ones too. Um, how should we respond to centuries of imperial looting and collecting? Should we shrug, shrug it off as part of the rough and tumble of history, or should we attempt to right the wrongs of the past? Um, at the moment, there are outstanding lawsuits from Pakistan, India, Iran... Um, and there may be many other potential claims too from descendants of Dulip Singh's illegitimate heirs. What's interesting is that the current Queen has never worn it uh, and she's made a great point uh, of uh, keeping away from it for whatever reason. Um, And while it's almost certain that nothing in its immediate future uh, is likely to prize the diamond from its display case in the Tower of London, it was last seen on the coffin of uh, the Queen Mother and awaits a new queen consort, and one day may well sit on the head of Queen Camilla, the wife of the future Charles III. This may well not be good news for the future of the monarchy. And if that doesn't finish off the monarchy, nothing else will. Thank you very much. (laughs)